Listening Dog Media. Ooh. God, that gave me a shot. A very excitable armor. That's a dog behind the door, I think. In the... Oh, my God. Sorry about this. Right, Arlo, come here. Come here. Right, calm down. Dog, dog fight. Who'd have thought we could all dog kick it off in the Lee Arms? I know. Right. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. It's really important for music fans to be behind the mic. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. Personality radio for me is what I love listening to, and I don't listen to the three in a row in a township brigade. It's just a nice chat and a friendly voice. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds, and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I think the secret is a certain level of enthusiasm. And for this episode... I'm in a pub in Knutsford, the Lee Arms, with a DJ whose career in radio started in Manchester as a producer. I thought, well, if I could do something with music, that'd be great, because I, I figured that if you were going to be working for 40 years, you'd better doing something that at least you didn't hate. He presented the Radio 1 Breakfast Show. Yeah, well, that was the biggest radio show in Europe when right. we took it over, but not for long. <laughs> he now presents Radio 2's folk show and weekend shows on BBC Radio 6 Music. I don't think either of us would really consider ourselves as being a double act. We consider ourselves as two blokes who work together. He's one of the greatest broadcasters of our time. So that was a different me, a totally different me to who I was. And now I think it's much closer. You go beyond it being what you do to somewhere it's like what you are, isn't it? There are parts of me I think only come alive on the radio. Welcome to How to DJ with Mark Radcliffe. <laughs> one of the greatest broadcasters of our time. Wow. It's a true fact. Well, I've been around a long time. There's some longevity to it, although not as long as your other esteemed guests like uh, Lord Blackburn. I would say <laughs> one of the greatest broadcasters of our time. Well, I stand that's by that. Extraordinarily kind. Thank you very much. And uh, you've got Arlo here. Arlo, yeah, my cavapoo is uh, under the table. And do you come here often? Do you know what? I'm ashamed to say that this is the nearest pub to my house. It's very kind of you to come so close. The last time I was here, I came for a pint with one of the greatest broadcasters of all time, Chris Hawkins. <laughs> that was the last time, I mean, and that must be about two and a half years ago, isn't it? I remember that time because we'd been chatting about all sorts of stuff and then came that revelation from you that um, you were not well. Yeah, I was talking to you about the throat and neck cancer, I think, which was, I think that would have been about 2018. And so... I'm sort of in the clear from that, but then just recently I had to have another operation because they found something in my pancreas, so that knocked me out. But that, that I'm OK, I'm over that now, and I don't need any chemo or anything this time, so it should be a lot easier. So I'm scanned at the Christie Hospital in Manchester about every 45 minutes now, and so anything that comes up, they should find it. So, yeah, I'm fine. You look really well. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I feel OK. Before heading into the record box of questions that I've got here, I'd mm. like to go right back to the start. Were you always into radio as a kid? No, I was just always into music as a kid really and when I was at university I don't even know if there was a university radio station but I was never interested in that or hospital radio or anything like that I was only interested in music and so I listened to the same things that everybody else did like you know appeal and stuff like that it was so difficult to hear music in those days I remember having this conversation with Neil Tennant you know he was an editor of Smash Hits I remember vividly reading about the Ramones this is not right back to being a kid but I remember vividly reading about the Ramones who did seven 
17 songs in half an hour. And I, I could read about them every week in Melody Maker and Sounds and NMA, New Musical Express. There were three music papers, and you could read about them in all those, but you couldn't hear them anywhere. No one would play them on the radio, and they certainly weren't on the telly. And so you would have to order a record without hearing it, and it was expensive, and you'd have to go into Bolton, order it, wait two weeks for it to come, come back and then play it, you know. But it was kind of exciting to finally get to hear it. And it gave you great anticipation for the music, I think, whereas now it's ubiquitous. If it's like water in it, you turn the tap on and music comes out. But no, I was always interested in music, and the first band I was really into as a kid was The Monkeys. And I liked the records, and I liked the TV show. I used to get Monkeys Monthly magazine, and it looked like being in a group. It looked like the best thing it was possible to do because you played music and you had fun and you went you wore matching shirts and you went places in a big car and when you got there people were quite pleased to see you even girls I thought that looks good and so it proved to be so you know from the age of 14 in fact this November I'm doing a gig with my old school friends from my first band at the site of our first gig at Lost Dock Tennis Club in Bolton, 50 years since we first played. What was the band name? The band was called the Berlin Airlift. But we've had to co-op some people in from the other band at school who were called Black Cat Bone. And Black Cat Bone were in the year above us, so they were the big boys. But So it's a super group, really. But the lead singer of Black Cat Bone, who's going to be the lead singer in our band, is a guy called Tony Wadsworth, who went on to be the managing director of EMI records and also the chairman of the BPI. So Tony is our lead singer. And he was at your school in Bolton? Yeah, along with, and, and in his class was a guy called Bryce Edge, who certainly was, but may still be the manager of Radiohead. So Tony's our lead singer. <laughs> <laughs> who else are you into? So it's the Monkeys and the Beatles, really, I think. And I just remember being sort of fascinated by, I was just loved Top of the Pops. I loved any music. I mean, bizarrely, one of my first memories as a kid of music, I used to love a programme on the BBC called the White Heather Club, and it was Scottish country dance music on the telly, people flinging themselves around in kilts. I don't know why. I had my mum make me a little kilt. I used to dance in front of the telly. But then beat music, and I got um, a, a little plastic sort of Ringo Starr drum kit, a cymbal and a, and a snare drum, and I used to beat the hell out of that watching Top of the Pops. And so I wanted to be a drummer. And so I had no interest in radio. I just wanted to be in a group, really. And when I left university, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I thought, well, if I could do something with music, that'd be great. Because I figured that if you were going to be working for 40 years, you're better doing something that at least you didn't hate. What was your first job? My first job was at Piccadilly Radio in Manchester, and it was assistant producer of drama and classical music. Uh, I got paid £2,600 a year, uh, which was great, because those were still the days when you got paid to be a student, which, you know, my children can scarcely believe now. And the grant was £2,300 a year. So I got a £300 a year rise, which meant lots more cider. How did you get the job? Well, it's a bizarre story, really. My dad knew some of the people. My dad was a journalist in Manchester, and he knew some of the people involved in Piccadilly Radio. And Piccadilly Radio launched a short story competition. And they wanted a couple of literature 
students to pre-read these before the shortlist went to the judges. And so my dad said, well, I'll mark will do it and he'll bring a mate. And so uh, me and a friend of mine from the course went and read these stories. And so I knew a couple of people that way. And then this job came up and, you know, drama and classical music, which commercial radio did in those days. And I'd read some plays as part of my literature degree. And I'd sort of grown up on classical music because my dad was a classical music critic. So I used to go to the Halley Orchestra from being very young. So some of my, my first gigs would have been classical ones at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester, Handel's Messiah and stuff like that. What other gigs were you going to? The first gigs I can remember going to were in Bolton. The first bands I saw, there was a band in Bolton called Iron Maiden, but not that Iron Maiden. There was a Bolton Iron Maiden. And um, there was also a band called Blue-Eyed Toad. And so I used to see them. And I always used to stand right at the front of the stage to see how they were doing it. And that lasted a long time. If we went to gigs, me and my mates, we would always get there early. And as soon as the door opened, we'd just go down to the front of the stage and look at the equipment and try and work out how it was they were making these noises. So we did that. And then the first big gigs I went to, which were not in Bolton, but we would get the bus into Manchester. And this was about 1972. The first two big gigs I went to uh, were Genesis at the Opera House doing... Selling England by the Pound and Foxtrot, the album before that. Foxtrot is 50 years old this year. That came out in 1972. And rather marvellously, I paid £1.25 to see David Bowie as Ziggy Stardust at the Manchester Hard Rock, which was a former bowling alley that later became a branch of B&Q. One of your heroes. Yeah, I mean, my ultimate musical hero. So at Piccadilly, were you still harbouring ambitions to be in a band and for that to be your career? Yeah. Very Did you, much. you really think that you could make a living out of being in a band? Yeah, I mean, I thought that's what I was going to do. I don't know why I thought that was how it was going to happen. I just thought it would happen. I just thought we'd play in a little club in Manchester and someone would see us and think, you guys are brilliant, have this money. And I thought that would be it. I really did. It's a shame that Tony Wadsworth wasn't like a few years ahead of you actually at school. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And so I think that even when I had that job, I thought, all right, well, this this will do for the next few years until the next band makes it, you know, and the bands were always arguing and splitting up and you thought, well, okay, we've learned from our mistakes, which we never did. The next one, we, you know, I just had eternal optimism that it was going to happen. I don't think I really doubted it, but I had no real urge to be a radio presenter. But what happened was I was very involved in the Manchester music scene and this was sort of late 70s into the early 80s. So it was sort of peak factory and Richard Boone was running New Hormones with Buzzcocks label and all that and there was a Manchester Musicians Collective. There was loads of bands, loads of gigs. Were you mates with Tony Wilson? Yeah, and so that was great and all that music was coming out and I went to the guy who was running Piccadilly Radio and said, listen, there's, there's an amazing amount of music in Manchester, you know, we're not playing any. And he said, well, we haven't got anyone who knows any, anything about it. I said, well, I know about it. And there was an engineer at the station, a guy called Stuart James, who was in that scene as well, who later became tour manager for the Smiths and the Chemical Brothers. And um, I said, well, we know about it. And he said, well, can you present a radio programme? And I said, well, how hard can that be? You know, I'm only going to tell people what it is. You know, I only sort of was thinking about sort of flatlining in a manic depressive voice and sort of becoming sort of a Manchester John Peeler like. You know, that was what all I wanted to do, tell people what the record was. So to their eternal, well, I don't know, credit or foolishness, they said, well, okay then, you can have Saturday afternoons while the football season is finished. You can play whatever you like on Saturday afternoons for two hours, as long as you carry the local league cricket scores. And I like cricket, so I said, well, that sounds great. So I'd say, well, that was 
Shack up by a certain ratio, and now it's over to Rishton in the Lancashire League, who are uh, 53 for seven, you know. So we did that, and then at the end of the summer, they said, oh, this is quite good, actually, so we'll move it to Tuesday night now. And so I had a programme called Transmission, so that was my first radio show. And were you producing the rest of the week there? Yeah. 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 I mean, I was a producer, and I was a producer when I went to Radio 1 and the BBC in Manchester, so the only reason I became a presenter is because when BBC started the old Radio 5, not 5 Live, but before 5 Live Radio 5, and they wanted a magazine programme from each part of the country, and Manchester was at its height, so they obviously wanted a Manchester programme, and the guy who was producing it approached Mark Riley, and Mark said, no, you don't want me doing it, you want Mark Radcliffe, your man. He used to do it on Piccadilly. So in, in a sense, I owe my whole career to Mark Riley. That was Hit the North. That was Hit the North. And then from that, Radio 1 gave me a little programme on a Monday night called Out on Blue Six. And then they did another one, sort of art show called The Guest List, at which point the guy who was my boss as a producer said, listen, you know, you're going to have to make a decision here. And uh, then Matthew Bannister came to Radio 1 and said, you can have 10 till midnight, Monday to Thursday. And so the decision was kind of made then. But I was pleased to be a presenter. I mean, and, and people think I'm joking when I say this, but genuinely I was pleased to be a presenter rather than a producer because I found out that, A, it was not only much better paid... But B, genuinely, much easier. Because as a producer, you're responsible for everything in the programme. As a presenter, you're only expected to be responsible for yourself. You have one job to do. The production work that you did Mm. taught you, I guess, about the craft of radio. So it did equip you to become a presenter. Without question, yeah. I mean, I think that when I start a radio programme, I can sort of see a map of the whole two or three hours in front of me. I can't see the words. I don't know what I'm going to say. The shows we do now with Stuart, we don't really ever say, let's do something about this. Something we'll throw out and it will, that's why we like doing it live, you know, and you know this. The strangest thing will just take. And I think that your judgment, though, makes you look at something and think, we can run with this, or that's just a one-off, we'll just pass over that. So I think that I have a feel for the whole show. I have a feel for the sort of, structure of the music and what we've played and what we're going to play and what we need now to I think I, I think I've got a production overview of it it's very interesting that you say that Greg James on this podcast he and I talked about the rhythm of a presenter's delivery being important when people say oh, I like this presenter or mm. that DJ and they're never quite sure why Greg is of the view that the rhythm of your delivery is important yeah i mean i think that we're all aiming for a state of feeling no nerves you know you'll remember that des Lynham sort of like they measured his heart rate and when they went live at the start of match the day or grandstand or whatever it was his heart rate actually dropped he was so relaxed and i feel a bit like that i feel like not the slightest nerves now doesn't mean i don't want to do it well doesn't mean i'm not trying my hardest but i just don't feel nerves and i think when you start out it's the hardest thing in the world to just be yourself because it's such an unnatural thing to do to sit behind a microphone and talk to yourself or whatever you know and i think the thing that we're all aiming for ultimately The real crucial sort of part of it, I think, is warmth. Audiences, whether gigs, radio, theatre, whatever, audiences can smell fear. There's nothing that unsettles an audience more than being able to detect nerves. They want to feel in safe hands, whatever they're doing. They might not like it. They might not like you. They might not like what you're playing or what you're doing, but they want to feel that someone's in control because that's what makes them relax. And I think that if you can go beyond that into something that's genuinely warm, so it feels inclusive, it feels inviting, 
I think that's what we're all after, really. For all of those shows that you've just mentioned that you did on Radio 1, uh, how did Afternoons happen? Well, Afternoons was the happiest accident, really, because Mark Riley and I were doing the late-night show, that 10 till midnight show, and we couldn't believe that we were been given a national radio show. We couldn't believe it. I mean, see, here's a cliche. We were like kids in a toy shop. These were the days before you kind of had to book a studio and charge it out. You just went in. We went in about midday for a show that started at 10 at night because we'd spend three or four hours messing about in the studio doing the Kraftwerk story, our stupid versions of all their songs. And... It didn't feel like work. It was like having your own playroom, but with BBC engineers and all the, what was then state-of-the-art technology. And no one ever said, what are you doing, wasting all this time? Everybody said, great, you know, get on with it. And it was amazing. And that show was really successful. And what you've got to remember about that is that we have music and all lots of new music, classic music, sort of sketches, poetry, new books, new films. Mark Kermo was on there, Will Self was on there, Harry Hill was on there, uh, Mel and Sue were on there. You know, there were lots of people who broke into the media who came through that show because we wanted to open it up to all these kinds of people. And, uh, you know, a couple of people have said to me, that was practically my internet, you know, because there was no internet when we were doing that. And so if you were a kid doing your O-levels, your A-levels at university... Where were you going to learn about all the new things, you know? And a lot of people took a lot of that from that show. So I feel pretty proud of that, really, that we did it. And from that, because it was successful, we'd stood in for Chris Evans for a couple of weeks on The Breakfast Show, and that had gone pretty well. And so when it came up that Chris had a big row with Matthew Bannister about not working Fridays, we got the job, to everyone's surprise, including our own. You know, I mean, we tried to get out of doing it. Genuinely, we said we weren't moving to London, thinking they'd say, right, forget it then. And we'd go, phew. And so, and then we said, uh, they said, this is the money. And we said, God, it's loads, you know, let's ask for twice that. And so we asked for twice that, thinking they'd say, who do you think you are? We'd say, phew. And they said, yeah, all right then. And I, oh my God, we've got to do it now. And, um, but I think we felt that, were we arrogant? Or, I mean, I think we were confident because the show we'd been doing was so successful and everybody loved it. So I don't think it crossed our minds that we wouldn't be successful. So when we started to fail, it was pretty surprising. Were you arrogant? I think I was probably more arrogant than, than it's easy for me to admit. But in defence of myself then, I thought we were doing a radio show that was different than what had been done before and that what anyone else was doing. And so because all the people who, who were involved in sort of editorially and further up than us had done programmes, that you know, the Radio One way, you know, we know what that meant. Not exactly smashy and nicey, but still with that sort of feel. And I wanted to do something differently. I think I had to be very single-minded and quite belligerent to get my own way because I was determined to have my own way. So whether that was arrogance or whether it was determination or whether it was just I developed a sort of steeliness just to get what I wanted because I thought what I wanted was right. I don't know, but probably there was a bit of arrogance there, yeah, because we've been successful and, you know, we're all egomaniacs who present radio shows, aren't we? Do you think it changed you? For a bit, probably. Did you enjoy the adulation? Yeah, think so, probably. Um, you know, I don't think I ever got carried away by it. I don't think I was one of those people who went into places looking round to see who I thought might have recognised me. But I think I still... Um, I think I still quite like it now when people recognise my voice and say, oh, yeah, I listen to that. You know, I'm sort of used to that now. Do you think you need it? It's interesting, isn't it? I don't think I need it, no. But I sort of still quite like it. And I've been used to it for such a long time now, it's sort of 
been part famous, of my life. You famous know. for a very, very long time. I think the thing about me and fame, and it's that like I've never been flavour of the month. I think that's good. I think that's what's kept me going for so long. Really, I've always been sort of top of the second division, if you like. The thing about all of us, I think, Leslie Douglas, who used to run Radio Two, once said to me something that I've never forgotten, and uh, he said. All radio presenters are egomaniacs. And I think that's true because you have to have a belief that what you're saying is worth hearing. You have to, or else you couldn't do it. But she says that all radio presenters are egomaniacs, but the worst of you are those disguised as people with no ego. Oh, what little me? Oh, you mean, you know, and it's like, and I think there's something in that, you know. And I think probably there are presenters who we know who've kind of adopted that. And I may have done it myself from time to time. Do you think particularly during the breakfast show years. How many years were they? Oh, two? No, it, was, it wasn't even one, I don't was think. It not? I don't think so. <laughs> I think it was about nine months, I think. During that time, you know, peak fame and everything. Yeah, well, that was the biggest radio show in Europe right. when we took it over, but not for long. <laughs> <laughs> you soon killed that. Did you party hard? Did you enjoy the moment? Not really, I don't think, no. And I think that we felt that, like, Chris uh, Evans had partied really hard and by his own admission become something of a kind of monster and a beast. I think he admitted that. And I think we felt ourselves to be very much the antithesis of that. And we were very much kind of like a couple of pints down the pub kind of guys, you know. One year we didn't go to the Brits because we were doing the pub quiz at the railway, you know. And I think that we thought that people would kind of like that as the antithesis of Chris, really. And it turned out that they didn't. And I can understand that better now because I think people at that point weren't ready to have the kind of breakfast show that maybe Sean Keaveney eventually did for Six Music, you know, where a certain kind of person got that, like, oh, my God, I'm knackered, you know. The Radio on Breakfast show was still expected to be this sort of big firework going off first thing in the morning to get everybody cracking on their day. And I can see that better now. Again, we were determined to do it our way, and it never occurred to me that it would fail, but um, it did. How was the parting of ways with Mark Riley when you started at Radio 2? Well, it was never really considered that we would carry on. I don't know whose decision that was. It wasn't mine, particularly. I think Mark felt very much that he was ready not to be a sidekick and go through the rest of his life called Lard, and I can understand that. You know, I think he wanted to do his own thing. I think I was easy either way, really. I think, is my recollection of it. You'd do it again, wouldn't you? What? With Mark? No, not now. No, I think that it's been too long. I mean, Mark and I... Um, I'm just looking where my dog's gone. No, he's all over there. I, Mark and I never fell out. And there have been a couple of things where people have asked us to do things. And quite a lot because that Mark and Larcher in the afternoons that we did after the breakfast show, you know, became so big and so good to us and so successful. And so people love that and still quote that at me all the time, even though it finished, I mean, not far off 20 years ago, 2004, we finished that show. But I think it was of its time... And I think that if you try to rebroadcast bits and pieces of that, you know, it would stir up all kinds. You know, the, the, these things that they have to put when they put the Benny Hill show out. This programme reflects the attitudes of the time, you know. And so I don't think that it's um, something that we would want to revisit like that. But I think also Mark and I just kind of... Um, Arlo, come here. Come here. I'll just get the dog. I'll just hold the dog's lead. Arlo, come here. Come here. <laughs> Uh, just hold on to him there. Um, and I think that Mark was certainly more reluctant than me to ever go back there. Because, I mean, I think that I just carried on being Mark Radcliffe and, he was, and he'd stopped being lard and become something else. And so I understand that. But I think he was right, ultimately. 
We're not the people who were the Shyrosses and Mark and Lard anymore. And it would be kind of tragic if we were, you know. We've grown up and we're different people. And I'm proud of that work and Mark's proud of that work. But it's something we don't want to revisit. And I think that, like, you know, if Mark and I ever did anything together, people would want it to be that again. And it can't be. And so I think it's genuinely best left. And your partnership with Stuart McConey has been a great success. That's actually lasted longer than my partnership with Mark, funnily enough. I mean, Stuart and I started presenting together in 2007. So, I mean, that's longer than I worked with Mark. Yeah, that's worked very well. And I think the reason that that's worked well, when Mark and I started, we were really kind of best mates. We were going to all the gigs. We couldn't believe it. We had this open door because we were Radio 1. We could do it. You know, it was a dream come true. And we sort of went everywhere together for a few years. And Stuart and I have never really been like that. I don't think either of us would really consider ourselves as being a double act. We consider ourselves as two blokes who work together. And so Stuart and I are friends, but we're not best friends. You know, we don't really socialise outside the show. We don't live in the same city. We don't live in the same part of the country. Um, We meet on air. How did you get together? Well, Stuart had been a guest on that late night Radio 1 show. And one of his early books, it might have been Pies and Prejudice, I can't remember. Anyway, he did a launch for it in Britain's Protection, a pub in Manchester in the room upstairs. So we went there with my producer, John Leonard, who, who I worked with for many years, and who knew Stuart and who knew Leslie Douglas. And at that point, Leslie was hiring me for Radio 2. I was doing 10 till midnight again. And, uh, you know, he and I were talking and he'd been a guest on my show. We'd always had a good time. And I said, oh, you know, maybe we should do something together one day. And he said, oh, yeah, that might be fine. And we didn't say any more about it. And the next day, Leslie Douglas phoned me and said, what's this about you and Stuart wanting to do a show together? I said, oh, well, it was mentioned, but I don't know, you know, yeah, I mean, sometime. Yeah, she said, I think it's a great idea. Do you want to do it for 8 till 10 on Radio 2 in the evenings? I said, wow, okay. And so I phoned to Stuart. I said, do you know about this? He said, yeah. He said, but like he said, listen, they've offered you this eight till 10 on Radio 2 and um, they've offered me the six music breakfast show. So he said, that Radio 2 show is yours. If you want to do it with me, I'll do it with you. If you don't, that's fine. I've got this job. So you decide. And so I um, thought about it and I thought, well, I don't know, you give it a go. So it, that was how that came about. And so that's how it started. And then it was moved to the afternoons on Six Music and then on to the weekends at Six Music. And still doing the folk show on still Radio 2. Still doing the folk show on Radio 2. And, and you love that show, don't you? Yeah, I love that show, yeah. It's like... Um, Folk music's not the only music I like, you know, uh, but it's one of the things that I like and one of the things that I kind of grew up on. What I love about that show is it, it's a portal to another world. You do an hour on the radio, but it beckons you and me in particular into a whole scene of smaller sort of woodland glade sort of festivals and little gigs and clubs and lots of lovely people making interesting music. And it's a beautiful scene that I think, you know, in many ways, you know, one of the tragedies of the pandemic because those guys found a way to make a living by going, you know, if you play to 100 people in a room who've paid a tenner, well, there's a thousand pounds gone in that room. And when you take the expenses out, if you do that three times a week, you can make a living. You don't need a big record deal and you're not going to get one if you're a folk artist. And um, they found a way of sort of all these myriad cottage industries of people who managed to make a living off Roots music, really. And I loved that. And all the gigs were very friendly. Having grown up sort of on rock and roll where the bands were by necessity and design aloof, stayed in the dressing room until they went on, stayed away from the audience. You know, when I started going to folk clubs and folk gigs and found that the people who were singing and the artists were just with the punters and having a drink at the bar and talking, then they'd walk to the stage and do that. And also that they would talk to the audience while they were on the stage 
stage. You know, I think one of my, often the disappointment of going seeing a band you really love is the lack of communication between them and the audience, really, isn't it? I think those connections, like we were talking about radio, a kind of warmth, a kind of connection. You know, I think someone like, some of the very successful bands kind of have this in common, don't they? I mean, someone like Chris Martin or someone like Bono, whatever you might think of them and their music, they do have an ability, Springsteen, they do have an ability to bridge that divide between the audience and the act, which not a lot of bands do. But all folk artists do. If you're a folk artist and you go and you just play the songs and you don't say a word, people wouldn't have that. Have you got a folk band on the go at the moment of your own? For the last few years I've been doing um, a one-man show called Loser, which is me playing the guitar and doing some songs but doing a lot of talking in between. Really, alternative comedy sort of started from the folk scene, really, because it was people like Mike Harding and it was people like Billy Connolly, Jasper Carrot, Max Boyce. They were the only alternative to Bob Monkhouse and Bernard Manning, really. And they came from the folk clubs where they were telling stories that explained the song and then they'd play the song. And eventually the stories became much longer than the songs. And eventually the songs sort of fell off the end of the act, you know what I mean? And so, and I always loved that. There's a guy in Bolton who, who, who never made national fame, um, but he's quite big in the Northwest called Bob Williamson, who uh, Peter Kay was a fan of as well. And in fact, Bob Williamson does appear in some of uh, Phoenix Nights. And um, he was like that as well, just kind of observational raconteurism, if that's a word, and then the odd song, you know. Some of the songs were comic and I could take or leave those, but it was the chat about, like, what had happened to his granddad putting the bins out that drew me in, you know. And I think that was a big influence on what I'm doing now. And it was kind of a big influence on when I got on the radio, really. You know, it's kind of, I think that's another, like, an eye for something sort of faintly ludicrous that you think... I can use that. You know, there's something in there. I was driving through Macclesfield not that long ago and there's on a gable end there was painted an advert. It said, Voodoo Combat, the family-friendly gym. I'm like, how family-friendly does voodoo and combat sound? You know, and you, so you just you think, I don't know whether this is what is in there, but you write it. I, I, I stop, when I park the car, I write it down. Um, but anyway, but musically, um, I, I haven't got a folk band. I play the drums, which was my first love. I play the drums in an Americana band called Fine Lines, who are based around here. We're going on tour in October and November supporting Kiefer Sutherland, which is very exciting. Whoa. Whoa. So yeah. they're playing the drums at the Shepherd's Bush Empire in November and things like that. So that's very cool. And then I have a um, an electronic duo called Oon. All right then, Mark. It's time now to head into the box. The box of doom. And for you to pick the first of your five from 45 in this Who's, do, who's done these questions? All the questions are on 45, Steve's. Uh, that can't be revealed. Right, OK. Let's have a look. Is there a secret to being a great DJ? Um, it's an odd question, that, isn't it? Because it implies that you think you are one yourself. No, but I mean, I think that, I, I think that it's kind of um, not trying too hard. Trying to find a level of naturalism that's like, so it just feels like hearing someone talk who's just kind of a bloke or a woman, you know, just who you might strike up a happy conversation with in a pub or a cafe or something, you know. I think the secret is a certain level of enthusiasm. If you're being a music DJ, I think people want to think that you know something of the music that you're playing. You've got to somehow imply that rather than spit out, you know, because anybody can wiki it and sort of read all the details which they didn't used to be able to. So it was quite important to give information. But I mean, I think that people will want to feel that you're comfortable with it but uh, and know what it's about, even if you're not going into absolute depth, you know. 
but just that warmth really and just kind of friendliness and openness and welcoming sort of feel to it. Yeah, when I first fell in love with radio as a kid and I was just fascinated by the one-on-one way that, that yeah. radio is, you know? Mm. It's amazing, really. I mean, I love radio, you know. I mean, it's like you can make a world in a second, you know. You can just get a sound effect and you can say what... Me and Stuart did a thing for... Six Music were doing a kind of wellness day or something, you know, and it's like I said, let's have a rattle from McConey spa day. And so we had like hot tub things and like, and then we were talking as if we were in a hot tub and then breaking the fourth wall and admitting we knew it was a sound effect, but then going back to, but you know, like on TV, that would cost you millions to create that set and film it. But with radio, it's just a sound effect and you can make a whole world in a second. And that's a beautiful thing, I think. So yeah, secret to being a good DJ. I think being comfortable in your own skin really, isn't it? It's about being confident about who you are. People don't want to hear you trying to be something they think you're actually not. All right, here's another question. Right, what have we got here? What is the most famous you've ever felt? Uh, I suppose it would be the the announcement of the Radio 1 breakfast show that we were taking over, and we did a photo shoot, and that was the start of my thankfully brief kind of connection with the tabloid press, really. It was quite an interesting situation at that time that the sun were sort of pro-Evans and the Mirror were very anti-Evans. The Mirror, um, the showbiz columnist of that time, was Matthew Wright. He was a good guy um, and very supportive of us. Big prog rock fan. Big prog rock fan, yeah. Um, And he was very supportive of us and really tried on our behalf to kind of make our vision of things stack up against the Sun and Evans' thing. Not that us and Evans had any enmity, but I think that, like, when we went to... The, we had a pint at the Lassa Gallery, which was a pub next door to the old BBC, all demolished now on Oxford Road in Manchester. And there must have been about sort of 20 or 30 photographers there. And I remember sort of thinking, this is a real step change, this, isn't it? I, you know, did I have some reservations at that point? I don't know, really. I think that sort of arrogance or drive probably carried me through, and I thought, you know, this is just what goes with the territory, really. What about telly? Well, telly, I haven't done all that much, really. I really used to like doing um, a show on Channel 4 called The White Room, which I think was a really good music show. And I do think that the production values of that show really changed what Jules Holland's show was, because Jules Holland's thing was started out as basically a bare studio, like a whistle test kind of thing. And uh, The White Room was very high production values, you know, amazing design, great sets, great lighting, all that kind of thing. And I, I think after The White Room finished, Jules Holland became a bit more like that, to be honest. And so I was disappointed when that finished, because I was the, the, you know, the presenter of that for about four or five series and I suppose the other thing that people would know me for has been Glastonbury which you know people watch all over the world don't they you know and I did that for when it started the first televised Glastonbury's me and Mark and Katie Puckrick did it and that was uh, when it was Channel 4 and then Glastonbury set up their own production company we did that I think I did it with Mark Lamar for a couple of years and then ironically though I was working for Radio 1 when the BBC took over coverage of it, they dropped me in favour of Peel and Joe, I think. And so it took me a while to get back, but I did get invited back. And that lasted a long time. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. It's hard to imagine a job that's better than that, really. We should all feel lucky on a daily basis, don't we, and grateful for what we've had. I listened back to it and I thought it was terrible, you know, and because I could hear us 
trying to force something that wasn't there. Another one from the box. Uh, how much do you prepare for your shows? Uh, not much anymore. I mean, that's not laziness, is it? <laughs> uh, but the, I, it's because I prepare to the extent that if we've got someone who's written a book, I'll read it. If we've got someone who's made a film, I'll watch it. If it's got if it's someone who's made an album, I'll listen to it. If I'm doing an interview, I will kind of, like Woody Woodmansey, I will write him a trusty moleskin notebook. I will write down things I want to ask him. Um, you know, so I'll do it to, to that extent. But I never, ever, ever think about what I might say. I might have a thought, or I might see something in a newspaper and I'll cut it out. I think there might be something in that. You know, like 10% of us spend longer than 20 minutes in the shower and how much water is that? You know, I thought there might be something in that. And so I'll sort of collect, maybe I'll have a few scraps of paper in my bag, you know, and I'll kind of get to the studio and pull them out. And, you know, I never would think about what I'm going to say. And I would never discuss it with Stuart. Well, I mean, we do have ideas. We'll say, oh, we'll celebrate the 50th anniversary of Ziggy Stardust. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to Lorna and Sarah, the producers, and we'll, we'll think about things that we might do. Like this Sunday, we decided to celebrate the 175th anniversary of the Ring Donut. I don't know what shape that's going to take yet. Um, <laughs> and I might not know what shape that's going to take when we start the show on Sunday, but a shape will develop. And it's almost like that's part of the fun, seeing what emerges, really. And also, it doesn't really matter. If it doesn't take, we'll let it just quietly slip away. It's, uh, it's only background noise, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's all we so, do, really. But, like, in terms of preparation, I won't think about what I'm going to say. I mean, I won't think exactly about what I'm going to say. This weekend, I was presenting the show on my own. And uh, the show starts at 8 o'clock, and I play two records. And I might genuinely not know what I'm going to say when I open the microphone. I know I'm going to say what those records were, and I know I'm going to say we've got Woody Woodman's here on, and we'll be doing the chain, and we'll be doing this, that, and the other, you know. But then an email might come, and it'll just take me somewhere, you know, and it's just like, I suppose, having the confidence to let yourself run with it, really. All right. Another question from the box. If you weren't a DJ, what would you be? Well, you know, I, I, the only other job I ever wanted really was to be in a, in a band. If um, I weren't a DJ, I would like, you know, I would really dearly have loved to have been a drummer in a big group. Well, you kind of achieved both of your ambitions, haven't you? To be in a band and the, the radio one. Well, I've been in a band, but never as a job. But in a way, I think that that's the joyous thing, really. I think in some ways, music is the best possible hobby and the worst possible job. Not being a DJ, not being on the radio. I mean, I think that's, that's hard to imagine a job that's better than that, really. We should all feel lucky on a daily basis, don't we, and grateful for what we've had. I, I see people trying to scrape a living in bands, even bands who are moderately successful. You know, if you're hugely successful, that's a different thing. But if you're moderately successful, it's a scrape of a living, you know. And you've got to travel all the time. And the pandemic was a sort of blight and and people's income dried up for a lot of them, you know. But in some ways, a lot of them appreciated it because it took them off that kind of gruelling road life. It forced them to have a rest. It feels like you're doing more music now than ever. Yeah, I think so. I think I'll always do music. I hope I'll always do radio. I mean, you know, I'd love to think I could do the Radio 2 folk show or a show for six music. Uh, I mean, it's my ambition to do 50 years in radio, which would be in... 29, 2029, so another seven years. So I really hope to do 50 years in radio. You know, I would love to do that. I think that you've got to be careful as you kind of talk about retirement. I mean, you know, I kind of work part-time now, and I like that. But I, I can't imagine doing none of this. So I'd like to do radio and music. And I still wake up in the morning and think, oh, great, gig tonight, or, you know, something like that. And so you go beyond it being 
what you do to what you are. There are parts of me, I think, only come alive on the radio because yeah. I've done so much of it. Are you an amplified version of yourself, would you say, on the radio? I'm certainly an amplified version of me. It's funny, when I do my one-man show, I won't let my wife come and see it because she says, why not? Are you rude about me? I said, well, yes, but, I mean, it's not that. It's that, that you are a heightened version of yourself and you can be that person that Mark Radcliffe, but it's different to Mark Radcliffe. And if she's there, I feel self-conscious about doing it. And I, on the radio, I suppose, yeah, you we're all versions of ourselves, aren't we? I think my on-air version of myself is quite close now. I don't think it always has been, but I think my on-air version of myself now... I think that was part of the problem with The Breakfast Show. Someone said they wanted to do a podcast about that breakfast show, and we, we said we don't really want to go there. It seemed bizarre, of all the things we would celebrate if we did, why celebrate the biggest failure? But maybe that was a good reason for doing it. But I listened back to it and I thought it was terrible, you know, and because I could hear us trying to force something that wasn't there. I could feel it, you know, like Manchester United, of sort of some good bits that didn't fit together quite. It wasn't the flowing Manchester City glory, you know. But it, 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 but it, <laughs> I can't believe it's taking you that long to <laughs> dig it, you know. But, you know, that I just, I, I could hear it not working, you know. And so that wasn't me. So that was a different me, a totally different me to who I was. Um, and now I think it's much closer, to be honest, as I've got older. I think so. A final question from the box, your last one. Oh, right, OK, yeah. Complete this sentence. I wish I'd never. <laughs> I wish I'd never. Do you know, I mean, I find that really hard to answer because, you know, part of me said, you know, I wish I'd never done the Radio One Breakfast show, but I don't. I, I'm glad we did, you know, and it did. It was a stepping stone to the afternoons. And I think it, it all it worked really because it made the afternoons by the time we got there, I think people felt that we'd been quite badly treated on the radio on Breakfast Show by being got rid of too soon. I didn't. Let me stress that. I think that, like Matthew Bannister and Andy Parfit, I think what else could they have done at that point? They were under so much pressure to make that show work. What were the conversations at the time in the build-up to you finishing? Well, they, they, I mean, it clearly wasn't working. Whether it would have, you know, we'd lost about a million listeners. And whether it would have bottomed out and built, I don't know. We'll never know. But they wanted us to sort of try and be a sort of a bit more bright and breezy, which I can understand. And I think we probably fought against that because it wasn't our natural thing to do, really, you know. And so I think when you're on the radio every day, especially early in the morning, as you know better than almost anyone else alive, I think there are a lot of similarities between DJs and footballers, really, because we all know we can do it. They know they can do it. They train all week to do it. And you can have a great game or a bad game. We can have a good show or a bad show for yeah. no apparent reason. Yeah. And some days you'll have a day where it feels like there's a little conveyor belt in your head and words are just pouring off it, slipping down and out of your mouth and it's effortless and other days you just can't get it out you make mistakes you know I mean it happens I um, I don't think you're built for your brain and mouth to engage at that time it's the Ooh. only other time you'd have a conversation with anybody would be if you were going to an airport at the time of day that I'm on it yeah and uh, and those grunts and groans and then you'd airport. have three pints of Stella when you got there so <laughs> that would loosen that up but you can't uh, maybe that's the answer um, but yeah no it, it's tough but anyway we got rid of and um, they started saying like oh maybe Mark Riley shouldn't talk so much so we had things like we had an item in the first half hour called five words for lard or something we made a feature out of it he was only allowed to say five words and they'd phone up after the show every day we'd have a conference call and you know just no one was happy with it and then one day um 
they said, oh, we're going to come up and see you tomorrow. I'm like, said, have we got the sack? And they said, uh, well, we'll come and see you tomorrow, you know. And so we had a sort of rather a uncomfortable night where we didn't know. But they came up and said, yeah, we're going to go with Zoe Ball and the late Kevin Greening. And funnily enough, we'd always suggested having Zoe Ball as a kind of showbiz reporter in London to give us a bit more of that pizzazz, you know, because I like Zoe. I've always got on really well with Zoe. But then they gave us the afternoons. But I think there's a consequence of us sort of being what people perceived as booted off, really. There was an awful lot of goodwill that we were sort of the injured party. But they were very good to us, and they gave us the show, and they paid us up the contract, and they were very good to us, and I had no complaints, and it worked out. So, you know, I wish I'd never. But I think I'm in the extraordinarily privileged and fortunate position of not regretting anything, really. I wish I'd never. I wish I'd never decided not to buy that house in Cornwall when we had the chance. That would have been a good investment. <laughs> we, were, we go to the same place in Cornwall for our holidays and it's got insanely, stupidly expensive and busy now. But, you know, when you could buy a kind of um, bungalow on the front near Polzeth for about 16 grand, you know, now Gordon Ramsay's just sold his down the same lane for seven and a half mil. I've got one last question for yeah. you, Mark. There's some kind of non-specific catastrophic event with a caveat that you, Mark Redcliffe, have to play the last three records on earth. What would those records be? Well, I think maybe Good Times by Chic. (laughs) There's no point. I mean, part of me wants to think, oh, you know, we'd play like Five Years by David Bowie. Well, you know, I mean, or Rock and Roll Suicide or, you know, something kind of maudlin. But I don't know. You want If you had three records left on Earth and the bombs were hurtling towards us, you want a disco, really, wouldn't you? You want to have a party. I think I'd play Sandstorm by Darude. You know, I love that record. I mean, I never understood those records at the time because I didn't go to those clubs. But the way that that kind of techno stuff, that the, the way it just holds you and holds you and holds you and then lets you go is amazing. I love that now. So I think I'd play Sandstorm by Derude and uh, Good Times by Chic and um, maybe something uh, like... Um, Block Rocking Beats by the Chemical Brothers or something like Excellent that. Excellent choice. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, loving it. Yeah, yeah. Mark, thank you so much. It's so good to see you in such good health. Yeah, thanks a lot. And that was How to DJ with Mark Radcliffe. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. 